0: All right, go ahead and take a seat. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to gather around your word. I pray that it would be not just informative, but it would be transformative. That as your word is proclaimed from my very imperfect and feeble lips, that you would, by the power of your spirit, impact our hearts and our minds so that we would receive the good news you have for us out of this all too confusing, sometimes even avoidable book in our minds. As we come to the end of Revelation, help us to see the good news that awaits, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, we are in the book of Revelation, we're coming to the end, we've got one more message left next week, and then we're officially done, I will have preached through the entire book. Um, Now, instead of just sort of reading the passage up front to you and then explaining it, what I'm going to do tonight is is sort of read it, explain it, read it, explain it, read it, explain it, uh, so that we'll just take it piece by piece. Uh, But there is an overarching theme that uh, ties all of this together, and it has to do with a question I have for you right up front here, and that is, have you ever tried to describe heaven to someone? And if you have, what comes to mind when you do? I mean, since ultimately what it means to be saved, quote-unquote, within the Christian vocabulary is that one one day we are going to go to such a place called heaven, or that we're going to be a part of such a place called heaven, it would seem like we have a pretty good idea of what it is we're actually looking forward to, right? I mean, it would make sense. But I don't know about you, I found heaven a pretty difficult place to describe. It's a pretty difficult thing to wrap my mind around when I think about it. In fact, I think the way most Christians tend to describe heaven is by contrasting it with what it is not. Namely, what we've referred to historically as as hell, you know, the, the opposite of heaven, so to speak. And so the appeal of heaven, I think for many, isn't so much for what it is per se, but for what it is not. we hear about death and destruction that you know is hell and we combine that with the images that have been shown to us about this place called hell you know throughout history and we go okay well here's what i do know i don't want to go there so i do want to go to its opposite and that's fine whatever the opposite is it's better than that good If you remember if you were here last week just by way of review we left off with the world as we know it coming to an end obviously that hasn't happened yet that's something that's coming in the future but but the world has come to an end in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 or in chapters 20 and 21 uh, and now what we're going to see in tonight's text is John describe what the afterlife is going to be like for those who Who are God's people? What what is this heaven actually going to be like? That's the topic for tonight. And And I hope maybe we'll get a little clarity so that at least we have something to say if we're ever asked that question. What is heaven like? Well, first of all, we can see from the first couple of verses that heaven will be filled with people consumed by the glory of God. Heaven will be filled with people consumed by the glory of God. Listen to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls of the seven last plagues. You don't need to really know much about that because that's from before, so just set that aside for right now. But notice what the angel says. He spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then John says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now let's just pause there for a second. The first thing we notice is that heaven is filled with people. Why do I say that? Notice the imagery. On the one hand, heaven is described as the bride, the bride of God. And yet, the very next statement tells us that this bride is also represented by a city. In some sense, we can say it's the bride city or the city bride. It's what heaven is. And we know from other passages throughout Scripture that both of these terms are used to describe God's church. That God's church, you and I, are called the bride. And just like God's church is one but many members, so the city is one but many members people in it. Indeed, all throughout John's revelation, he describes heaven as being filled to the brim with people from all tribes and tongues and nations from all over the world. Part of what makes heaven heaven is indeed other people. Now, if you're an extrovert, you might be like, oh, yes! That's fantastic. I love other people. On the other hand, if you're an introvert, you might be like, ah, do the people really have to be there? And do I really have to be around them all the time? Well, first of all, I mean, heaven, yes, just because it's still with people doesn't mean that you're always going to have to be surrounded by them all moments of your existence. I don't think that's what it's saying. But even if you're not a people person, so to speak, however you define that, there's good reason to believe that um, that might change when you actually do arrive in God's city. Why? Because these people, unlike all people on planet Earth right now, are consumed. They're filled. Overwhelmed with the glory of God. Which is really just another way of saying that these people that you're going to be surrounded by are going to be the most beautiful, wonderful, kind, compassionate people you can imagine. Indeed, beyond what you can imagine. Look at the description as John goes on in verses 10 and 11. Look at the description of this city, of this bride. Look at the terms he uses. Again, go back to verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So again, you say, I don't know, man. I mean, relationships are complicated. They're difficult. People let you down. True enough, but not here. Not in this place heaven because all people will be consumed with the glory of God they will not be prone to the same sins and failures and slanders and gossips and violence and all the other things that people are prone to they are described as being radiant like the most rare of jewels and here's where it really matters for you that heaven is filled with people it's going to be filled with people that you love And that love you back. Yes, there will be family members there that have already gone on. Yes, there will be friends. Yes. There will be reuniting. But even, as good as that will be, even the people you don't know will be family as well in heaven. So heaven will be filled with people consumed by the glory of God. That's the first fact about where we're going. Secondly, heaven will be protected and secured by God's promises and his word. Look at verse 12. John says, It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the land. Now, I will say right up front, I don't think that this is necessarily a literal picture of the place we're going to be living in. No, I think that this is highly symbolic in nature, to describe the kind of place that we're going to be living in. Let's just dissect it for a little bit. First of all, we're told the city has a great high wall. In fact, later on in the passage, John is going to say the wall is 12,000 stadia high. We're like, oh, that sounds great here, 12,000 stadia. Well, 12,000 stadia is another way of saying, in our modern vernacular, The wall is 1,365 miles high. That's how tall the wall is. Now, it could be that we're going to live in a place that has walls that high. It could be. And if God sees fit and he wants to do it, that's fine. But I don't think that's really the point. I think the point is what the wall did for a city in the ancient world. What a wall did was protect you from invaders. What a wall did was keep a city safe. If a city's wall was breached by the enemy, then the people were sure to be victimized very soon after. The wall is symbolizing the protection and provision of God's people. But what's noticeable to me about the walls is not simply that they were the symbol of protection, but what the walls are adorned with and what they're built upon. We're told on the gates that they are adorned with the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, why on earth does that matter at all? Well, because the 12 tribes of Israel are those who received the promise from God that one day through their line, a Messiah would come who would redeem the world's population for God. And what is the city built upon? Twelve foundations, each of which has the name of one of the twelve apostles engraved upon. Why is that here? Well, because the apostles took the promises that were given initially to the sons of Israel and then spread them all around the world for everyone to take for themselves that all the world might join them in heaven. And here's the point for you sitting here right now. This means that ultimately your spot in heaven is completely secure, completely protected there because these promises of God, this testimony of Jesus Christ that the apostles were preaching has also been preached to you. The forgiveness of sins has been declared over you by God's word. And as you receive that word, as you take it for yourself, as as being for you, you are then made into a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom and even now can know it is waiting for you until one day you will occupy it in your body. So that's the second element. First element filled with people consumed by the glory of God. Second element, you're going it's built on and preserves us through God's word and promises third element of heaven, heaven will be perfect. That's certainly what the imagery is alluding to when we get to verse 15. Check it out. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal all the way around. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which which also is an angel's measurement. In other words, really, 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 really thick. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was Jasper, the second, Sapphire, the third, Agat, or uh, Agate, the fourth, Emerald, the fifth, Onyx, the sixth, Carnelian, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Burl, the ninth, Topaz, the, the tenth, uh, Chrysoprace, the eleventh, Jocent, the twelfth, Amethyst. You don't need to know how to pronounce all those, since obviously I can only pronounce about seven of them. And finally, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The imagery just described for us of heaven is taken from a couple different spots in the Old Testament. The measuring of the temple. It actually comes out to be a perfect cube. 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia. You know, it's perfectly cute. That the picture there comes out of Ezekiel chapter 40, an Old Testament prophet. And in that passage, Ezekiel is promising, after many, many years of persecution against God's people, many, many years of strife and struggle in which their temple has been destroyed, that one day, one day, God is going to restore their city. He's going to restore their temple, and he's going to be—it's going to be better than they've ever had it. In fact, it's going to be perfect in every possible way. The second image given to us of the rare gemstones that are hard to pronounce is taken from Exodus chapter 28 verses 17 through 20 where God's priests in the Old Testament are each given a breastplate with each of these stones on them to represent the 12 tribes of the people of God as they worship in his temple. But perhaps even more significant than this is that these rare gemstones are also mentioned in Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 28, and there Ezekiel paints a picture of what paradise in Eden was like, saying that the garden before the fall of humanity into sin was literally filled to the brim with these rare and beautiful gemstones. You put it all together, and the point of it all is to tell you that the perfect world that had been lost when mankind rebelled against God with our first parents, Adam and Eve, is now being restored. Heaven is Eden restored. Paradise restored. But better than paradise because we can't mess it up this time. It's not possible. Unlike the first time, where we could make a big mess of it, we're still dealing with the consequences of it today, in the new heavens and new earth, it is is upable. How about that for a word? You can't ever change. It. And because this is the case, because it will be perfect, heaven will be. Worshipful. Heaven will be worshipful. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. But nothing unclean, oh excuse me, but nothing unclean will enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life by faith in Jesus Christ, because the Lamb has given his life to have you, you are entering a place in which worship will be synonymous with the air you breathe. Unfortunately, the image that the church has conjured, uh, conjured up to depict this reality of worship in heaven has not always been very helpful. And so when when people think about heaven, maybe the one thing they do know is like, well, we're going there to worship forever and ever. And then what comes to mind for a lot of people is ancient pictures of like fat babies sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And you're like, okay, maybe for a little bit, but for eternity, that's what it's going to be like? Well, no, that's not what it's going to be like. It's not going to be stoic and boring. That's not the picture Scripture gives us. The picture Scripture gives us is that truly for the first time we will really do all things to the glory of God and it will feel great. It will feel wonderful. I don't know if you've ever had a, you know, what's sometimes called a mountaintop experience. Whether you know, in church or some other place in your life. But, but there's, there's certain moments in our life where it feels like we're getting a taste of something beyond anything else we've experienced here, where we feel it's it, it, the highest of highs, but it's not because of some drug we've taken. There's just almost this ecstatic state. I remember one time, and, it, and it's only happened a few times for me, but I remember this one time, I was attending a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I just happened to have a couple extra days there before I had to travel uh, to another spot to, uh, to attend some classes and, and some lectures. And so I decided to go to this church that was fairly well-known and pretty large. I wanted to see what all the hype was about. And as I remember it though, I mean, the sermon was good and all, and, and I appreciated what the preacher said especially as a young preacher, again, I just tend to listen real carefully to hear what other preachers are talking about and how they present themselves. But there was a moment in that service, particularly during the music, where, I mean, it felt like I was experiencing a little bit of heaven on earth. And it happened during a song that I had never heard before. Now, I mean, a little background about me. I did not grow up in church very much, but when I did go to church, I'm originally from Southern California. When I did go to church, my family tended to go to uh, more charismatic-style churches. And as a result, I was never exposed to hymns my entire life. So when even after I became a pastor for over a little while, I was still being exposed to these like really famous hymns, well-known hymns for the first time. And the first time I ever heard the hymn "and "Can it be" was in this church service. I'd never heard it before. But I'm hearing them sing the words, and "Can it be that I should gain an interest?" In the Savior's blood, died he for me, who caused his pain, for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And I heard this being sung by by the whole sanctuary and by the stage filled with vocalists and musicians. And I started to feel a sense of great, uh, great emotion. I felt overwhelmed by the words that we were singing focusing on all that Jesus had done for me. And as the thought of all that Jesus had done for me was washing over me, we continued singing and we got to the the fourth stanza and I'm standing in the sanctuary, bawling my eyes out, like unable to sing the words at all, absolutely, like completely losing it as these words are sung. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And I'm telling you for a little bit. It felt like we were all singing alongside the angelic host. And I realized I got a glimpse of what every breath in heaven will be like. Worship won't simply be something we do. We're not going to go to the chapel service every day for 40 minutes when we're in heaven. It is going to be the very oxygen of heaven, the very atmosphere that we live and move and have our being. And so we finally come to the last aspect of heaven found in our text, and that is Heaven will be forever, will be eternal. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. is going to flow freely for you to drink. And the tree of life that had been forbidden to all humanity upon the world's fall into sin is now going to grow abundantly and you and I will be able to pick from its fruit and eat of it all day long. Now, I don't don't think there has to be necessarily a literal tree in heaven. The point is, it's never ending. It's never ending ever ending. So, let me wrap up with a quick little story that might, maybe, I don't know, but I hope will give you a sense of what you have to look forward to. A number of years ago, when my older boys who are now 15 and 14 were probably about seven and six. I was putting them to bed in their room. They shared a room where we were at. And one of my boys asked me, dad, what's heaven like? And to tell you the truth, I kind of stuttered and hemmed and hawed for a little bit because I, I, I mean, how do you take the truths that we just read about here in Revelation? And you're like, well, kids, um, there's streets of gold and we're gonna live in a 1,365 mile wide cube. Uh, and uh, there's going to be a lot of precious gems for you to go play with. Like, it, it, it doesn't translate for them, you know. I mean, and, it, and frankly, it might not even translate for us. I mean, we have to kind of relate it to everyday life. And so instead of trying to describe for them the things that John writes here, I wanted them to feel, to some extent, what it's going to be like, to, to have a sense of the feeling of heaven. And so I had them close their eyes. And he said, Boys, I want you just to think about one moment where you were really, really happy, where you just were filled with joy. So they closed their eyes. And after about 30 seconds or so, they opened their eyes. I said, Okay, do you have have something you thought about that where you were really happy? And one of them looked at me and he said, Last month when we went. To Bush Gardens, and you and I were on that roller coaster together. I said, "Okay." And then the other one said, "Actually, I was going to say last year when you and I went to Nickelodeon World in Minneapolis, and we were on that roller coaster together." <laughs> so both of them had a roller coaster story, but that was the that was the feeling, the sense of great joy that they had. And I said, "Okay, close your eyes again." picture that feeling of just excitement and happiness and relief and joy as you're going on the roller coaster. I want you to put your mind there and I want you to imagine that feeling times one million and imagine that it will never, ever go away. And they both said, "Whoa." I'm not saying that you're always going to have this sort of perpetual, exhausting, like, high. But what I am saying is you cannot begin to fathom. You only get glimpses of it here, little tastes of it here. But you cannot begin to fathom the joy that each and every second will be filled with in heaven. And that, because of the work of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, is yours now. Yes, you're still on earth, and yes, you're dealing with all the problems that come with that. There's pollution, and there's death, and there's violence, and there's hardship, and yes, 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 all that's true. But that's not going to be the end. The end is heaven coming down to earth and renewing this thing so that you and I would have endless joy and for that because of that the only way I can end this message is by saying come Lord Jesus and that's where we'll end next week when we conclude Revelation let's go ahead and pause for a word of prayer Father I ask now that you would fill our hearts with joy even now as we anticipate what's coming that you would help us to have imaginations that can receive what John says here this evening. That you would set our hearts toward that day that we might not fall into discouragement or difficulty. That we would trust you on the hard days here because we know the days that are coming are going to be better. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And now let us pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.